Guide me, Lord, throughout this day. In all I do, in all I say, tell me when I go astray. Hold me in thy light. Help me see that happiness comes not with wanting more but less. Teach me all my friends to bless. Hold them in thy light. Sing along if you know it. Guide me, Lord, throughout this day. In all I do, in all I say. Tell me when I go astray. Hold me in thy light. Help me see that happiness comes not with wanting more but less. Teach me all my friends to bless, hold them in thy light. Teach me all my friends to bless, hold them in thy light. I've passed my life as a stranger lord Roamed far in foreign lands Far, Lord, far too far Only he who knows he's far from home only he, Lord, understands. Only he who knows he's far from home feels the earth and understands. Sometimes a stranger did take me in. Then love, I thought, was near. Love, Lord, where is love? As the winds upon the desert sand whisper hope, then disappear. As soft winds breathe on the desert sand, so love sighs, then disappears. Sometimes a child laughed, and I did pause, and dreamed of joys at home. Joys, Lord, only a dream. For what joy is there without your smile? Empty like the ocean foam. For what joy is there without your smile? 
You're the sea, all else is foam. How long must I be a wanderer, Lord? You know where I belong. You know, Lord, yes, you know. Home is where my Lord's sweet presence is. I've grown tired of stranger songs. Home is where my Lord's sweet presence is. Bless me that I hear your songs. Thank you, Dumbara. You can feel from that song of Swamiji's this deep sense of longing, and that's very central to the path of discipleship that we'll speak about today. The topic of today is the guru-disciple relationship, and uh, seeing as how two of us only knew the earlier topic, which was attunement with the guru, um, we have somewhat prepared for that, but it's a broader topic, the guru-disciple relationship. Um, we'll speak a little bit, of course, about attunement with the guru because that's very central to the topic. Guru-disciple relationship. Master begins, oh, sorry, I'm, my name is Nayaswami Dharmadas. I'm joined by Brahmachari Dr. Aditya from Ananda, India, and Nayaswami Asha from Ananda Palo Alto. And it's just, Asha was saying in the vestry, we won the topic lottery. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is an amazing topic. And it's in some ways, of course, far too broad to cover in one class, but we can at least touch on some themes. Master begins the autobiography of a yogi with the words, the characteristic features of Indian culture have long been the search for ultimate verities and the concomitant disciple-guru relationship. And he phrases it that way, disciple-guru, which is very interesting because typically we use it the other way around, guru-disciple. But it is the disciple who initiates the contact, who begins the process, you might say, in any given lifetime, even though the bond between guru and disciple is eternal. It is created at the moment that a soul begins its journey. As just the festival says, the, the little bird goes out from its nest and gains strength and wisdom, its parents tell it, and what you acquire, share with others. From that very moment of separation, the disciple-guru relationship, guru-disciple relationship is created 
and sooner or later it must come to fruition. How it does is the divine romance of each soul. And in Master's case, and there is this element of romance, and I, I wanted to touch on that at the beginning because there is this deep connection that happens. And it's fascinating to see how it played out with Master and Sri Yukteswar. Master was at the Mahamandal Hermitage in Varanasi, Banaras, and was not happy there, was not feeling the flow of being able to meditate deeply and in the support of his guru bhais there, and was, had been calling for a guru. I mean, he spent essentially his entire incarnation up to that point searching for a guru, trying to get off to the Himalayas, trying to you know, visit every saint he could find. And finally, on the day of, his call to the divine was so deep, and Divine Mother answered him and said, your master comes today, cometh today. And so he met Sri Yukteswar, and they had this powerful, my own, you have come to me. Has anybody ever longed for that, that kind of connection with the guru, this recognition? I know when I came to Ananda, on some level I wanted that. And what I got was Swamiji waving out the window of a car, driving away for a three-month tour to Italy. <laughs> I, I saw him from a hundred yards away. That was my darshan of Swamiji for the first three months, was this wave and a little hat. <laughs> was about all I could see from the window of the car. And yet, it be has to begin somewhere. And for Master and Sri Yukteswar, that, the intensity of that first contact was so great. They were offering each other unconditional love. Sri Yukteswar says to Master, I will give you my hermitages and all I possess. And at the end of that meeting, he asks Yogananda to come to return to Calcutta, to meet him in Sarampur, which is very near to Calcutta. And it's only then, if anybody has ever noticed this, it's only then that Master actually asks him, what is your name? <laughs> and give me your address. I will follow you anywhere, but I'm not going back to my parents, essentially. And Sri Yukteswar gets pretty stern with him then. And then, sure enough, I, I finally figured this out. The four weeks was when he gets to Sri Yukteswar, and the 30 days is when he finally gets back to his home in Calcutta. And it worked out just as Sri Yukteswar predicted and commanded. And that element of the guru charging the disciple with something, asking him something, that very likely the disciple does not entirely want to do, or maybe really, really doesn't want to do, is woven throughout the process. And so Master does, in fact, return in, at, at the prescribed time, has to reawaken Sri Yukteswar's interest, offers his obedience to Sri Yukteswar on one condition. Yes, that you promise to reveal God to me. And then an hour-long verbal tussle ensues. It, what a fascinating discussion that must have been. Finally, Sri Yukteswar says, okay, let your wish be my wish. And then they tour the ashram, and another little crystalline moment comes. 
he sees the picture of Lahiri Mahashaya. Up until this point, he does not know, or, may, mean, or if he does know, he has not told us yet that he knew that Sri Yukteswar was connected with Lahiri Mahashaya, his own family's guru, and part of the, part, the imparter of the Kriya Yoga tradition. It's just what it tells me, one of the things that it tells me, is that relationship was so profoundly of the heart. It's not like Yogananda had this long list of preconditions that had to be met before the guru could be the one. He just had to have this recognition. And the recognition came, and it was like a familial recognition. And in fact, that's a key part of the very word disciple, which in Sanskrit is rendered as one of two words, either shishya, which is sort of the, the more properly understood one in typical daily use. It's a student, a pupil, someone, I love this phrase, someone, one who must be taught. I learned that just recently, one who must be taught. And, but it also, interestingly, there's a little subtle undertone of child. That word also means child. And then, of course, the other word that we've come to know is chela, which has many meanings. And, but for us, the one that is significant is the disciple is the child of the guru. And there is this deep sense of being part of that family, being part of that heart connection. And that is where the trust becomes nurtured that is required for the advanced stages of discipleship. Now, I read recently about a fascinating study that was done in 2018 and 19 at a place that I had never heard of. I mean, the university I've heard of, but Princeton apparently has a baby lab called the Princeton Baby Lab. <laughs> and in 2019, this study was done. And in the study, a parent and a child are wired up with a, a little cap, a little set of monitors to measure their brain waves. And I'd like to ask our tech team to show you a picture of this, if we can cue it up. And it looked like that. <laughs> and what they did, and, and this is very sweet because 42 little infants were gathered for the study. 21 of the 42 were too squirmy to go through with the, you know, the results didn't work. Three of the 42 were not willing to put that little cap on their heads. I think I might have been among those three if I was part of that study. I didn't like anybody messing with my head. The other 18 went through with the study, and this is what they found, that when they were playing together, and when one of two things happened, either the child was in the lead of the play, or when they were both focused on the same thing, 
their brain waves synchronized. They literally, not just figuratively, but literally were on the same wavelength. And this morning at the morning sadhana, I was reflecting, here we all are on the same wavelength. We're practicing Kriya, we're focusing on the Guru, we're in this deep sense of inner communion, and we get in tune with each other, but we more importantly get in tune with the Guru in that process. And this, in our lives with Swamiji, played out in a number of ways. And Padma alluded to some of these in the course of working with Swamiji and in the course of traveling with him and just being in his company. He worked on us on quite a few different levels. And I'll just give an example of one that's very sweet and a little bit humorous. There are a few of us here, I think, in the room today who have basically memorized the movie Bambi. <laughs> and it's because Miriam would be one, Jotishan Devi probably, and I'm sure there may be others here as well. We watched that movie a lot of times with Swamiji. And you might wonder why. I mean, it's a lovely movie. It's very sweet. I mean, but after 20 times or 25 times, I mean, it's like, your mother can't be with you anymore. <laughs> Come, my son. And the little Bambi's like, oh my God. <laughs> but Swamiji could relax. He didn't have to worry. It's going to come out okay. I mean, yes, it's not good for Bambi's mother. Okay, we, we get that. But in the long run, it works out okay. But he could, we could be on the same wavelength with Swamiji in that moment. And I tell you, I think he was working on us while that was happening. It's the sort of thing that he would do. And I think it's one of the reasons why, the light bulb goes on after decades, why he liked to watch movies that he had already seen before. Because he didn't have to worry about how it was going to come out. And he didn't have to sort of apply himself to the movie or fight with the movie, argue with the movie. But part of the role of the teacher, of the, of the guru, is to disabuse the disciple of a lot of little and large mental habits, little knee-jerk reactions and responses to life. I'll share a couple of them that happened to me. In one case, I had this little phrase had gone around. It had become popular, I think, in the 1990s. And when we lived with Swamiji in India, the appropriate circumstances came up for me to trot this little phrase out. The phrase was, no good deed ever goes unpunished. And you know, when you've done the best you could, you've applied yourself, you've really tried, and it completely blows up and it's a disaster. Well, you know, one of those situations came up. I don't even remember which one. I trotted that out in front of Swamiji. And he didn't sort of slap it aside. He just paused for a moment. 
And he said, well, that's not quite right. He said, no good deed ever goes unchallenged, which is, if you meditate on it, is actually quite a profound statement because you recognize that life itself will test your good resolution, test your good intention to see how real it is, how strong it is, how true it is. And another time I had been, I, I am a twin, I have a twin sister, and I had learned through life and probably from my mom in her nurse training that boy-girl twins are always fraternal. And so, but down through the ages, I've long since lost count of how many people trot out the question, are you identical? No, you can't be if you're boy-girl twins. This doesn't work that way. <laughs> well, Swamiji asked me that. So I trotted out the old tried and true, no, Swamiji, you can't be if you, yes, you can. <laughs> okay, now I'm not a biologist. I was not, this was not the hill that I was gonna choose to die on. <laughs> I'm not going there. So I let that one go. He says it's possible, it must be possible. Well, lo and behold, a few years ago, in extraordinarily rare cases, like one in perhaps many millions of twins, and twins are only two to three percent of all births, so you know, you're getting down to not very many, it is possible to have semi-identical boy-girl twins. Swamiji, you were right. <laughs> or at least partially right. right. More right than I was saying it's not possible. Another time, Swamiji was using the word unique and he said that something was more unique than something else. Well, in my English class, I had always been taught that it either is or it isn't. It's not very unique, it's not kind of unique, it's not more unique, it's is or not. So I, I stuck my foot in it, you know, I had to say it. <laughs> I mean, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the editor. My God, I mean, it's just like, how lame can you be? But anyway, so I said it. And Swamiji just said, I mean, he explained to me something could be more unique than something. I was, okay, I, that one I really do let go of. I've never heard, you know, maybe it is so. Maybe that's accepted usage now, whatever. It's perfectly, Swamiji, forgive me. <laughs> In many ways, the guru, the teacher, is the editor of the disciple's life. And we can do a lot worse than to have Swamiji or Master edit our lives. And this is one of the points that Padma was making yesterday also, is that there are times when it's not comfortable to be around that. You know, the ego has a job to do and it's darned effective at it. The job, and it's a very serious job, the job is to keep the soul connected to the body so you don't waste your incarnations. You get what you can get out of the incarnation. That is called an important job. 
Okay, good. Have a good ego. Have a strong ego. Develop it. Realize it. But then don't be bound by it. And that's where there's a certain stage along this path of discipleship that we have to come to. And Swamiji described this as pure desperation. He had come to the place where he was absolutely desperate to know the truth. And when he came to Master that way, Master accepted him that same day, that same moment. But then what does the Master do? He gives the disciple something impossible to do. So he asks Swamiji, now this was some time later, but still, he asks Swamiji, to work like lightning, but not change a word. Now he's editing the Bhagavad Gita. And it absolutely floored Swamiji. I mean, it, it absolutely broke his rational mind on a certain level because it's like, how can you do that? You cannot do that. And yet Master asked him to. And so at a certain point, the Guru challenges us to do something that is impossible or seems so at the time. But we have to try, because we have to follow the path that leads to understanding from the inside. And that's where the guru can work on the disciple. Sometime earlier in Swamiji's training with Master, he overheard from others later that Master had said to the other monks, see how I have changed Walter. And as far as Swamiji knew, he was working really, really hard on developing devotion through chanting and meditating deeply. And I mean, he was really, really working on himself. See how I have changed Walter. The guru is always trying to help us. Now, if we go kicking and screaming away, then the guru says, okay, I'll wait. You have eternity after all. And I'm stuck with you in a sense. I have to wait for you. But the disciple always, this is one of the reasons why disciple is in front of guru in master's uh, rendition of it in Autobiography of a Yogi is because the disciple in a sense always has his hand on the, on the switch or the, or the faucet, how much to take and how much not to take. When does it cross that line? And so when we read of Sri Yukteswar's sternness with Master, when we read of the ways that Master was really strong with Swamiji, very blunt with him sometimes, it seems harsh. You know, Devi referred to, or no, Pad, sorry, Padma referred to the, the time when Sri Yukteswar laughed at Master and was, was very, was kind of rude to him in, in a group setting. And that all seems, it seems pretty harsh. But when the guru encounters the level of yearning and desperation and absolute dedication from the disciple, then those higher octaves open up because that's the only way you get to freedom. The ego and the soul don't walk down the same road at the same time. One of them gives way to the other. Or in one sense, you could say the ego and the guru don't walk down the same road at the same time. One gives way to the other. And either will give way to the other quite willingly. It's not as if it's a big argument. But the guru always wants 
that willingness from the disciple. And it has to be proven. And that's the, the key to this. And I want to just close now with a few lines from Swamiji's beautiful song, Through Many Lives. And I'll ask the tech people to put the fourth verse up on the screen. Just try to feel, feel the consciousness that wrote these words. Feel the consciousness that is reaching to your heart through these words. summer and in winter, only for you, my heart thirsts day and night. I've learned that the sweetest songs is ever At last, fill me completely, or never more I'd wander far from thee. Lord, at last, fill me completely, for never more I'd wander. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Spiritual Renewal Week, that one opportunity we all have every year to keep everything aside and look once again afresh at the teachings and listen to these wonderful sermons, contemplate the high octaves of how we can move into this new spiritual year, you may say. I'd like to also welcome the online audience that is joining us from everywhere. My name is Brahmacharya Ditya, and uh, I stay in Pune city in India, and along with Naya Swami Jayaji, and I oversee the work over there. And it's always nice for me to come here, uh, especially this is my first time at Spiritual Renewal Week in person. I participated a few years ago in, uh, through online. And uh, I was telling a few friends who I've met now a few times, uh, and this time in the last one week, that there are some things that we see obviously, there is things we listen, we interact, new, let's say, work that is happening. On the other hand, for me, the most important thing from the beginning, when Swami first told me, he said, you should go to Ananda village, you should see Dr. Peter, you should see many others. I'm a medical professional, so he suggested I do that and see the clinic over here. And year after year to see my fellow Guru Bhais, the Acharyas, them, you might say, being reconstructed is something which is a blessing. We, it's called a darshan. And for me, that is where I set my gaze, that years and decades from now, that is where I'd like to be. And it is said, Master said that 
In the beginning, when we come onto our spiritual journey, we are cast into creation. God becomes us. On one level, we cannot complain too much because in the final analysis, He has become us. Nonetheless, we find ourselves in an ego. We think, well, the thing we have to do is perhaps strengthen the ego, make it all rounded, excel in what we know. And in that pursuit, after a while, we start facing limitations. The more we expand the ego in an unhealthy way, the more it becomes constricting. Somehow we get the things we want, perhaps the people, name, fame, money, and it always seems to be just still out of grasp. Like Swami used to say, the anticipation proves to be greater than what you have attained. And after repeated sufferings, Master said this starts going into our soul memory and we come into perhaps some incarnation with the questioning and perhaps with the blessing of having received all those things around us. Actually, Swamiji comes to mind. He said he had a good, he had wonderful parents, a good house, there was wealth and he was having many skills already in college. But like Dharamdas Ji was saying, he was desperate. He said, I wasn't happy. Those things didn't mean anything to me. One time he described his urgency, his ripeness in such a way. He said, I was so ripe when I met Master that he said, if our meeting was delayed even a little bit, he said, I would have died. And he joked, he said, I don't know what they would have called the cause of my death. <laughs> <laughs> that stayed in my memory as a doctor. But he said, he said, I would have died. And that, when one is that desperate, those words come out of our mouth. I want to be your disciple. I want to be taught. I want to learn. I want to empty myself. I do not anymore want to do those things which have brought me to this point. I I want to put that behind and I am your child. I'm born like the Bhagavad Gita and Bible both say, discipleship is our higher and our second birth. Actually, I remember my first uh, class on discipleship was in 2010 in my enthusiasm. I said to the students, I said, today is the most important day of your life. And I saw some of them thinking, <laughs> we knew it is sacred, but Nobody told us that. <laughs> and their exclamation made me think, have you read that somewhere? And a part of me said, I don't know where I read or heard it, but I should confirm. And I went back to find quotes of Master and Swami on discipleship. And I want to share with you both. They both said that is the most important step, an event that can happen in a soul's journey. The day we say, I want to be your disciple. Now, there is a day that we say it. Swami said it. We all have said that. We are here, all of us online. And then, like Dharamdas Ji said, there are those moments when we are asked to say that again and again and again, because that defines our willingness. Who knows what God is going to ask of you? Who knows what Guru has in mind? And Kriyanandaji used to say so many times, we get fixed, religion gets fixed, 
because we take a certain direction which was very good for us and we are either unaware or unwilling or fearful to ask again. And I want to share a story from millennia ago from the Ramayana. This is, the scene is, I'll quickly mention Raja Dashrath, King Dashrath, the father of Lakshman, Ram, Bharat, and Shatrugan. He's, he has given one of his wives a boon. And he said, you can ask me any two things anytime, I'll give it to you. And so this time comes where she asks him, he's about to actually coronate Ram very soon, and she says, I want to ask you for something. He says, please go ahead. And she says, I want Ram to be sent in exile for 14 years, and I want my son Bharat to be made the king. And Dashrath looks at his wife with pleading eyes, and Ram is already known, the Lord, even before his birth was, God is going to incarnate. People were rejoicing, he's our king. Dashrath was rejoicing, he's my son. Everybody except Keke, the queen, they were rejoicing. And she asks for this, and the king says, I gave you my word and I will fulfill it. And he calls Ram, and he explains his predicament. And Ram kneels before them both, and he says, that's my blessing. And he sets off. His wife says, I will join you. And he says, if it is your wish. His younger brother Lakshman says, I will join you too. And he says, you don't have to, but if you want to, you can. Now, Bharat is handling another nearby kingdom, and when he hears, he was told something is not right. Now, Dashrath passed away within days of saying these things. His sorrow, perhaps, was so great. And so Bharat comes, and he's finding all these ominous signs on the way. And when he goes to the palace, he sees his mother, Kekai. And she says, come, I want to tell you some good news. You are going to be the king tomorrow. Your brother is going. And he says, it is sad, but Dashrath has passed away. And she said, I arranged it for you. And he cannot believe this is really happening. Very quickly, he calls the ministers. He disowns his mother. He calls his brothers. He calls the family guru, Yogvashishta, and he says, I want at once to go and see Ram. Where is he? And they say he's on a hermitage, and he's about to go into the forest very soon. And so all of them, Bharat, his other brother, all the mothers, now after Keke has been disowned, she's remorseful deeply, she has a complete change of heart. She's trying to mend things, and she said, yes, I will also come and plead, I'll plead first to Ram. And so they all go, Yogvashisht goes with them, and there is Ram, <laughs> and they're waiting over there, and Bharat says, he says, I want you to come back, you're the oldest son, you are the most capable, the kingdom wants you, people want you, I want you to be the king, mothers want you to be the king, come back. And he says, how can you say that, Bharat? I gave a word to my father, our father, that holds supreme. And he says, no, 
Yoga Vashish to their family guru says, it's enough that you have wanted to do it. We take you on that value. Come back. We are orphaned without Dashrat. Now to lose you would be so great. Come back. And this is going on back and forth. And Ram is unrelenting. And just at that time, Sita's parents come. Her father is Raja Janak, who master said was Lahari Mahashaya in a former incarnation. And so Raja Janak comes and Yogvashishta turns to him. He says, sir, you have come. God must have sent you at the right time. He said, you alone can solve this dilemma our family is finding itself in. And what shall we do? And he says, I have heard about what's happening. And so he starts. First of all, he says, he said, on one side I have Ram, who is the upholder of dharma in the universe. On the other hand, I have Bharat, who is love personified, selflessness, purity, dedication to family and brother. He does not want anything in this kingdom. And he says, mine is a very hard decision to make. And he says, I am a mere mortal, but I will pray to God that he speak through me. And so he starts and he says to Ram and everybody, he says, Ram, you are Bharat's guru. You are the guru to many people. You uphold dharma. And there is nothing which is higher than dharma because if dharma goes off, people's lives, their morals, society, universe, the planets, he says everything will go in chaos and disarray and you are upholding those things. However, there is only one thing in creation, he says, which is superseding law. And he says that is love. And he says Bharat has love, pure selfless love. And today, right now, he says the scales are tipping towards Bharat. And so you can imagine everybody's happy, they're delighted Bharat is happy and he almost picks up the crown he has brought. He says, so shall we place this on brother Ram? And Raja Janak says, I haven't finished yet. He says, for love to gain power over universal law, it has to follow some of its own principles and laws. And one of the decisions you have to make right now, Bharat, is what can you give Ram since you're professing love? And Bharat says, I can give up my life for my brother right now. And everyone is astonished at this escalation of giving and love. But Raja Janak says, this truth to Bharat. He says, Bharat, giving up one's life is an easy thing to do. Sometimes it is much harder to live for your beloved. Since you profess such love for your brother and your guru, you should sit at his feet and with hands folded, Ask him, what does he want you to do?
in what does his joy and pleasure lie? And then taking that as your object of worship for the rest of your life, do it with devotion. And there is a verse in the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 13, verse 25, where Sri Krishna says, in the prior verse actually, he says, many find God through meditation, through discrimination, which is Jnana Yoga, and through good acts, which is Karma Yoga. And Krenandaji in the explanation asks, what about devotion, which is so important? And he says, well, devotion is so important it is that it is not even mentioned over there because it is understood without devotion, none of these three things would work. And the next words, which I want to really quote is, Sri Krishna says, and many find God by following the advice their guru gave, taking that as their supreme refuge, they cross over the river of death. And for Bharat then, as he sat at the feet of Ram, he said, what do you want me to do? And he says, I want you to run my kingdom for 14 years. <laughs> now, of course, there, is, there was much sweetness in between, <laughs> but I'm cutting to the point. He embraces him, loves him, offers his own life, consoles him and such. But he says, I will come back and take it from you after 14 years. Now, in the entire Ramayan, there is only one character who is called by the title Mahatma or Great Soul. And that title is given to Bharat. And I know Swamiji used to address all of us as great souls. And so many of us, like Swami said, India has many gurus, very few disciples. I think our role is not so much, it is excellent to emulate Ram, but we become like Ram by following in the footsteps of Bharat. What are the parallels between Bharat and our life, our work in Ananda? Well, first of all, after Swami told Master, I want to be your disciple and I give you my unconditional love and devotion, Master said, I want you to lecture, write and edit and do a great work. And Swami says, sir, I want to be a hermit. <laughs> I don't want <laughs> the kingdom like Bharat is saying. So that attitude of willingness, moving from unwillingness to willingness. One of the things Bharat said in that long conversation to Ram, he says, I don't know how to run a kingdom. <laughs> don't we say that? <laughs> I don't know. Swami would put you in a position. <laughs> he says, Swami, my degree is in that. Oh, am I able to college for this? How can I do this? And he wouldn't explain. And Ram said to Bharat, the ministers, Vashishta, mothers, brothers will teach you. And here we have a community and if we find ourselves in that situation where you have to fulfill a God, Guru given responsibility, you say, okay, let me look for help. Another thing is, it is not Bharat's kingdom, like he himself was saying, it is Ram's. 
It is not Ram's either. It was their father's who was also a custodian for God. And so what is Ananda? Swami used to remind us, remember, it is not your work. It is not my work. This is the work of Mahavatar Babaji and Paramahansa Yogananda. And we are stewards. We are custodians. And so if we contemplate some of those things, then we say, okay, I find myself, I have said yes to discipleship. I have found a guru who is said to be the highest gift in all the three worlds. And once I have attracted the masters, once I have attracted their smile, their blessings, how can I get the highest gift out of this highest gift? Because then our love, our devotion, our attunement gets tested. We can be in tune to the degree we are not in tune with our ego, our own likes and dislikes. And there comes, as Swami said, I resolutely will introspect myself. Even something as fine as I don't want that responsibility could be a sign. And actually Bharat Thang, he, he fell before Raja Janak and he said, I used to think I have devotion for Bharat, for Brother Ram. I used to think I have devotion for my Guru. But today you have opened up my eyes and the curtains of selfishness that were still hiding me behind them. And he said, you have saved me from incarnations of wandering. And Kriyanandaji many times used to say, like Bharat said, he said, I cannot do this. This great work, you may say, that Master gave him kept unfolding. It keeps unfolding even now. And Swami would remind us, he says, the secret is, you can't do it. <laughs> but he used to say, I cannot do this. But my Guru can do anything through me. I have to be that instrument. When Sri Ram came back after 14 years, it is said the treasury was 10 times richer. People were in tune because they were not used to seeing Ram only there or being in front of him. They had, they were forced to attune themselves inwardly. Outward proximity is wonderful. Time with the Guru, with God himself, we would all love that. But one is tested when that closeness has to be established inside. And so if we keep some of these things in mind, I'd like to close with this thought that I do think we are very blessed. We have, of course, attracted to ourselves, ourselves too, a line of masters to Swamiji. I think we all can look back and every now and then it is good to contemplate, as they say, the power of one man the power of the attunement and discipleship of one man. That was Swami Kriyanandaji. Many disciples of Master, yes, did wonderful things, but Kriyanandaji was like a giant among disciples. And that statement actually came to me from Monima one time. Her son told me that Monima was the foremost disciple of Neem Karoli Baba. And she, her son said, for 45 years, he asked his mother to give him a technique of meditation. And she wouldn't, and Moni means she was in silence. One day Neem Karoli Baba told her, you should be in silence. And she just bowed. And her son told me, he said, I was 12 years old. 
And she went in silence. And he said, I've never heard her ever since. He was not complaining. He was also going to his guru's ashram at that time. And he said she bought many slates and chalks and pencils and she would write. And even when one time I had the blessing of seeing her, she gave me a chalk and a slate and wrote Ram on it. And through her, actually through her son, she said, tell him he needs to do Guru Seva, which was also very much in line with what Swami said to me. And without saying anything, she said everything. But when her son asked her, <coughs> give me a technique, give me, you are, you are giving mantras and techniques to everybody. After 45 years, one day she said to him, go to Ananda. And so I got a phone call very early one morning and somebody who was a library, uh, was a part of my library in 2009 in Pune, in Ananda, he called me, he said, can I come and see you? I said, sure, I'm home. And so very early morning he comes and he comes with this very nice gentleman and he says, this is Monima's son and he, has, he wanted to come to Ananda. I said, oh sir, you should have told us we would have come to pick you and such. He said, how would I have told you? <laughs> he said, he was old school, so he said, Ma told me to come. So he said, I wrote the address and phone number on a paper. And he said, but I came via Mumbai and I stayed over with some friends and they put my kurta in the washing machine. <laughs> And he says, next morning, I found <laughs> nothing in my pocket. After he had sat on the bus and the conductor said, we are about to reach Pune. And he said, where do I have to go in Pune? And he says, so he called his friend and he says, I am in Pune. And he said, oh, bhaiya, you should have told us. He said, no, I'll tell you the story. So he comes there and he says, why are you in Pune? He said, oh, Ma told me to go to an organization and get the teachings, but I lost the address. He said, where did she tell you to go? He said, oh, it's a place called Ananda. Oh, he said, oh, they're in the next building. <laughs> and Kriyanandaji had just taken a building on rent and some of us were staying there. I was in the men's monastery. And so I get this call in the morning and he comes and he says, look how God brought me here. So years later when he came again, Kriyanandaji had just finished writing the book, the biography of Paramhansa Yogananda. And uh, they are Hindi speaking uh, devotees primarily, but it, the book was in English at that time and Swami gave seven of them a copy each. So Bishtji, as his name is, Monima's son, he and I became friends and uh, he called me a few days later and that was the day of the biography launch in Mumbai. Uh, where many of you, Jyotishan Deviji, Dharamdasji, many others were there. And uh, I was helping with that event. And I got a call from him that morning. He said, I reached home. I gave Ma this book. And now Ma was, again, Hindi speaking or maybe even illiterate. And he said, she looked at the book and she would speak telepathically or she would write down things for him. And she said to me, this book has not been written by any ordinary disciple. She said, as great as Yoganandaji was as a saint, he also attracted such disciples to him. And she said, this book is, the, is written by a disciple whose discipleship is the rarest of the rare kind. This event, she said, will be a success. This book will be a success. And that day we had to close the gates and people will had to sit outside to get in and such. So now if we find ourselves with the inheritance, you may say, of Swami's books, 
on one level as master explained to swamiji he said he said i have brought a new expression to religion both for the west and actually his expression is quite a new expression too on one level it's a fresh interpretation for the east also well that calls for attunement that calls to try to understand what that expression is how to bring it into expression and then swami ji relentlessly gave us examples led by example and he brought 150 offerings one may say which you and i have inherited and now perhaps we find ourselves specializing in one or more of those areas through his disciples and i do mean that swami ji had disciples he has disciples it's a subject of perhaps something that center leaders could cover master said he was the last in the line of gurus but swami did say once towards the end of his life in private circles that i am a guru but not a guru to replace the other gurus you see that word just brings all sorts of thoughts and feelings and imaginations but he was like a father a brother a friend who would take care and not turn away any sincere child that came to him i was there many times when he took personal responsibility he replied to people in some of in some instances so if he took that responsibility in my own little way one time i was going through the office where i work in pune and i had a feeling before the altar so many times we feel the pictures are silent and so many times they speak very clearly and i had this feeling that would you like a blessing or would i <laughs> i immediately pulled a cushion and i sat down and the feeling was what kind of a blessing i said as you feel inspired masters and i suggested offered something but the interesting thing was the following question that came through whom would you like this blessing swami ji had passed away and through whom would you like this blessing and intuitively i knew who to pray to so i prayed to some of my very dear acharyas and they are with me in this room with us all in this room and as if the procedure was waiting to be finished my blessing was before me and keep aside the fact that i got a blessing i know such these things are so sanctified sometimes many of us do not want to bring it out but i bring it because a great master like yogananda ji has disciples and his power through his disciples through his advanced disciples and your and my job again like bharat is to keep ourselves in tune to see what is it that's stopping me from saying yes to what is being asked of me today and the more we do that the better off we will be i'd like to close with a practical suggestion that i try to keep in mind and i have been reminded attunement is such a sublime reality you wish it was a thing you could see and say yes i am in tune i have attunement with me that it is helpful to keep a few friends next to you who can shake you up sometimes <laughs> and say what are you thinking <laughs> you're not in tune aditya let's have a conversation give that right to others at least a few others 
and play that role on your part too if you're feeling somebody is like in mountaineering, somebody is just in rarefied air, losing their way from the peak, shake them up, bring them back. That is what the masters do. Often they are silent though, but like Janaka was the spoken voice for Ram and God, let us play these different roles. They are all aspects of our consciousness and we would do a great service to uplift ourselves and to uplift others. Among the many gifts as a teacher that Swami Kriyananda had, he was extremely good at taking concepts that were so much bigger than we are, and then stepping them down piece by piece until it finally came to something that we already understood, and then we could build on that. Because on the path of self-realization, dogma doesn't take you anywhere. Um, it's a clear mind helps, understanding the teachings help. I'm not suggesting that we can move forward without a, a strong mental energy. But if we're only repeating words that sound good, uh, like uh, Dharmadas was talking about in many areas of our life, I can relate entirely to what Dharmadas was saying. Swamiji never allowed us to get away with sloppy thinking, is the only way I can say it. And that was one of the reasons it was so much fun to be around him, is that you had to always be awake, always. Just to, I'll, I'll go where Dharmadas was for just a moment first. For some reason he was doing an, a, a radio interview in Los Angeles, and whoever his host was, they thought it would be fun to have one of Swami's students on also, so it was she and he and me. And I have a lifelong, I, I know nothing about the rules of grammar, but I learned to speak well from my parents, but I think I must have had the flu when I learned the difference between I and me. <laughs> because I never learned the difference between I and me until actually after Swami was gone, even though he corrected me as many times as I said it wrong, which was pretty much always, he would always correct me. So we're on this radio interview. It was a very big interview. There were thousands of listeners, I think. And I'm telling some heartfelt story about Swami and me, except I guess it was about Swami and I. I don't know, or vice versa. And he just interrupted me right in the middle and corrected my grammar. <laughs> and it was so funny. Just the whole, I mean, the poor host had no idea what was happening, but it was like, well, Swami used to use the phrase, the editor never sleeps, is what he said. But it was more like, um, I'm always going to be there for you. There is no circumstance in which I won't be. So coming back to where I wanted to begin here, it as it happens in the community that I live in, in Palo Alto, and many of you have visited there and you may know, I live in this great big house, this great big three-bedroom house with a living room and, you know, multiple bathrooms and a big kitchen. It's actually the community house. And the reason I live in it is because I can live in it as a community house. So, in fact, I really have a room in it. 
And I get to just sort of play out this fantasy of having this big villa lacking the servants, which is sort of a problem. But <laughs> <laughs> and so lots of people come in and out of that house, even to the point where occasionally I pack my little bag and I go over and stay with Helen so that there's one more bedroom. It's just the way it works. And it's interesting because generosity of heart is a spiritual quality worth developing and I've had a lot of fun over my lifetime developing it so that it doesn't feel that hard anymore. I used to watch some of my friends live similar to the way I'm living. I couldn't imagine how they could do it. But you work on these things over time and suddenly it becomes second nature to you. But sometimes people are so reluctant to take from me. Oh, you need a car, here's my car. Oh, you need a bed, here's my bed. You, you need some money, here's some money. Just food, whatever you want. And I'm always having to push against people. And, and sometimes I have to just plant myself and say, do you think I'm lying to you? Would I offer this to you if I didn't mean it? And I have to say, you know, I'm a truth teller and you all know that, so I'm not going to say it if it's not true. And then reluctantly they'll take it. This has been going on for years. I'm, I come up here for this week and I'm hosted by Netri and Jeevda. Keshava, Bess and I are both staying in that house and we only came up in one car. And so she's arranging her life to give us a second car. I say, no, no, you don't have to do that. You know, we don't mind. I'll walk. It's 100 degrees. I don't mind, you know. <laughs> and I, suddenly I heard myself. I heard myself. I think, why would she lie to me? But you see how deep it is? We have this extremely deep aspect. And one of the greatest obstacles, even to accepting a guru, what to speak of being able to receive what that guru has to give us. And this is, again, how many, have you, how many times have you heard Swami puts it even in the Festival of Light? As many as received him gave he the power to become the sons of God. Speaking, St. John is speaking of Jesus. Well, you, you would think, oh, if I was with Jesus, I would receive him. Would you? You know, yesterday I didn't even want to borrow someone's car. And it's just an old car, you know. <laughs> and instinctively, I think, oh, you know, what? I'm not good enough. It's too much trouble. But think of it also on this side. Everyone wants to be loved. It's just this deep, this d deep feeling in us that everyone has, whether you admit it or not. Sometimes we want so deeply to be loved that we insist that we don't because we're afraid it doesn't exist. We're afraid if we really open our hearts, we'll be hurt because God knows we've all been hurt. So there's this power in the universe that is trying so hard to love us. I mean, it isn't trying hard to love because its force is love. This is Jean Vianney, the French saint. If you knew how much God loves you, you would die for joy. Now, why is that so powerful to our minds? Why don't we know how much God loves us? Because even when a friend wants to loan us a car, 
Something in it says either, I'm not worthy, you don't mean it, I don't trust you, I'd rather do it myself. And then the weird paradox of this is that what we want more than anything is to have people who are close to us, who will understand the needs of our hearts and will live with us. And this is friendship, really. This is where Master says, the highest form of love is friendship. He said, every other relationship has just an element of coercion in it, is how he puts it. The mother has to take care of the baby. The husband and wife have developed a social contract as well as a personal one. You know, the children have to be taken care of. Fathers have to take care of their families. Everyone has a bit of coercion in it, except for friendship. We just have our friends, and if it doesn't work out, we walk away. And so that's why he says, freely given, and, and the other side of that is freely received, because there's trust, there's deep understanding, there's certainty. And it's so self-evident that we need each other. I mean, look at us, we're all gathered in this place, very, very few. And um, a, a couple of days ago, um, Jitendra was talking about the five stages of purifying the heart. I've never, I know just a little of the holy science, and you're about to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> What's so compelling to me about that little bit of what he said, Five stages of purifying the heart. The propelled heart, which is what Jatendra also spoke about, is the second of those five stages. And that's where all of us are, every single person in this room, because we are propelled to be in relationship with each other. Because we have to learn. We, we, we need to understand in preparation for the ultimate love the ultimate love, which is God's love, not merely our love for him, her, it, however you say it, but his love for us. And this is where the guru comes into the story, because it's just such an abstraction. We, it, it's just so easy to make it up. It's just so easy to pretend that I really do love. If you had asked me, if I would have hesitated to take that car key, I would have sworn to you that I would just take it. Of course I would just take it. But I didn't. Because there's so much we have to learn about just being part of all that is. We are celebrating the fact that we are a part of all this it, that is. Swami Kriyananda wrote that Festival of Light quite a long time ago. I recently gave, God knows, I must have given 50 short talks on the Festival of Light, word for word for word for word. Just recently, I just could never get through it because there was so much. We are celebrating our own greater reality, for you are a part of all that is. But it's, it's a little bit too much of an abstraction. So we go through this process where we just reach the limits of our own ability, and we're smart people. Nobody comes to the path of self-realization unless you're already uh, 
a, a, an old soul at least. Maybe not yet a great one, but at least an old one, <laughs> right? Swamiji was never enthusiastic about slang because slang, even if the words are not obscene, <laughs> it has a vibration. And his vibration was so refined that when slang would come out of his mouth, it would sound so funny. And uh, I remember once, with great elaborateness, he said it was a very bad experience. In fact, it was the pits, he said. <laughs> Just as he said it, you could see there's an uh, oscillation in the force, you know. <laughs> Just, something goes wrong. But the slang he did like was, been there, done that. He said, that is just a, a marvelous economy of speech. Been there, done that. So we all get to be on our own. We all get to swear that we're in charge of our own destiny. We all get to say, who can tell me anything about me except me, like this, until it just gets to the point where, like, honey, how's that working for you? You know, how's that working for you? But, but all that's being offered is what our hearts have always longed for, which is just to be understood, to be seen, to be understood, to be loved as we are, but also to be enabled, in the best sense of that word, to be enabled to become what we know we are destined to be. And it's, it's just friendship. You know, Swamiji correcting me in front of the thousands of whoever they were, couldn't see any of them. It was just friendship. It's, I know your heart. I mean, when, when you hear stories about Swamiji, what you're hearing is you're hearing the possibility that someone could actually understand you. That's all. And understand us better than we understand ourselves, because, see, we go back and forth. Yes, yes, I want to be free. Yes, yes, I want to be, I want to hear the truth. I want to this or that. Well, I loved who, which, I guess it was whichever one of you was speaking. Oh, it was Aditya. A, a young man was telling me recently, a very um, stalwart, strong, capable man was telling me, and he was, uh, in, had intuited many, or at least more than one incarnation, where he came with Master to be William the Conqueror and to conquer England and to be Ferdinand with Ferdinand III and to drive the Moors out of Spain. And he said he got so good at dying for Master <laughs> that it was always over by the time he was 25. And he was, now he was pushing 30. <laughs> and he realized he didn't have a lot of equipment, you know, for being a grown man. He just had equipment for being a valiant youth. But apparently, been there, done that, now we have to find something else. And, and part of us just wants to sink down to the platitude. There's no such thing as identical twins, if it's a boy and a girl. I, me, me, I, I can never remember which one. And far more profoundly, we just, a great deal of the time, and we're not stupid. 
we have extremely sophisticated delusions. <laughs> and when I talk to people, and they'll, they'll often say, I, out of embarrassment or out of the false idea that it's helpful to say this, I know this is silly, this is just a stupid idea, I shouldn't really feel this way. No, my dear friend, you know, Jesus made the fantastic statement, fantastic because so exquisite, just before the glorious and dramatic end of his incarnation, um, when he was praying to God, is this really going to be the story? I'm going to come to offer them all salvation and they're going to crucify me. And God basically said, yes, this is the end of the story and it's going to be all right. And he says, well, for this hour was I born. You know, and you hear the symbols and the strings start, and it just, and if it's the movie, you know, the lights, everything is fantastic. It was actually Jyotish, and I, I am so grateful. Many, many years ago, he was the one who said this first. For this hour were you born, every one of you, and me. I don't even mean this hour, I mean this minute. We have been working so hard to get to truth. You know, incarnation after incarnation, we have been working so hard. There's nothing stupid or silly or wrong about where we are right now. And here's what's even more fascinating. Master was self-realized, and he made the statement that he remembers back to being a diamond. I actually wear a diamond now. I think, who are you? <laughs> But that means that from here to here to here, every single step that we take, Master took the same step. He had to, if you think of it just as a stage of delusion. That's how he can love us so completely. That's how the Master can understand us so completely. That's how he can be so individually unique <laughs> in the way he guides us because he's been there and he's done that and he's our friend you know all the time in this world we are always surrounded by angelic beings they're always with us when our friend Paula died who many of you knew now many years ago she died completely consciously God Christ, Guru, those were virtually the last words she said. She, she took off her little supplemental oxygen, woke up the people that were all around her, said, this is very hard, you have to help me. And Jyotish, I believe, was there. We started chanting Om. When she died, she was a close friend of mine, but not a friend the way that, you know, we didn't chat-chat all the time, but there was a closeness. I was sitting on the floor fairly close to the bed when, when she took that last exhalation and there was no inhalation. The phrase astral wind, I actually experienced it. There was this force just went over my head and I, I didn't see them, but I saw them. Just a host of angels that had all come to pick up Paula. They just flew over my head. I burst into tears, and I heard myself say, I didn't know we were so close. And I meant close to each other. 
just we're so close to each other. We're so united, and the uniting energy is the aspiration and the power of the masters. This is right there helping us. And so after a time, I just felt Paula with me all the time. I, I prayed to her, I still do. Paula, if you were here, you would know what to do. <laughs> I, I, I apprenticed myself to her when she was living because she was so kind, and she always knew how to respond. I said to Swami, Swami, I feel like Paula is helping me all the time. Do you think she knows what we're doing? He just went like this, oh yes. Oh yes, of course she is. Do you think that love stops when we die? Do you think friendship like this stops when we die? Do you think that Master and Swamiji and Babaji and Christ and all of them, they don't have anything else to do but take care of us? <laughs> Sometimes people will say to me, well, you know, I would have called you, but I, I didn't want to take your time. I said, look, nobody calls me. I don't have anything to do. <laughs> you see, our lives are the tiny, tiny, tiny little reflection of the Master's lives. Do you think it pleases Master to try to love us and have us say no, no? Netri was annoyed that I wouldn't take her car key. I'm frustrated when my guests won't eat the strawberries because they want to leave them for someone else. You know, you feel insulted. You don't feel befriended. When we say to Master, anything other than yes, show me, teach me, make me your own. And even if we don't, haven't become a disciple and don't even know if we have a guru, do you think for a moment that you're alone? Look at this world, we're born to a mother and a father. We don't just appear on this planet. There has to be this big combination of stuff going on. Master actually said, if a soul wants to be born, sometimes, quote, he projects erotic thoughts into the room. Can you believe that? <laughs> Do you think you're ever alone? And you see what we're doing as we grow spiritually is we just begin to see it on a more and more subtle level. We're always seeing it from, from the time we're a puppy, apparently from the time we're a diamond. But what we're doing, just like Swamiji corrects my grammar and corrects our false thoughts, they just keep peeling it away. And they will continue if we ask them to. Swami gave us the purification ceremony. The Master says, open your heart to me, and I will enter <clears throat> and take charge of your life. Do, do we want that? <clears throat> do we want to be guided from above, or do we want to just keep going as we're going? Really, the choice is ours, too many as received him. So let us be among that many and open our hearts. God bless.